Hello and welcome to the inaugural episode of Classroom 101. I'm Andy Van Hayden, your host, and I'm so grateful you've taken the time to listen. A journalist turned teacher, I created this podcast so that more educators can have access to the ideas and wisdom of our profession's greatest minds. In Classroom 101, we strive to improve education by calling out its least helpful terms, paradigms, systems or practices, suggesting better alternatives. Today's guest, our first ever, is Jeremy Hannay. Jeremy is the head teacher of Three Bridges Primary School in West London. This was Jeremy's first interview since Three Bridges were visited by Ofsted and judged outstanding in all categories. A story that went viral online thanks to the scrutiny and stress-free way they achieved it. If you are a teacher or parent, if you have any interest in education at all, I guarantee you'll come away from this episode inspired. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. When education's in pretty bad shape Teachers are leaving on the planet and their escape There's not enough time to teach the things you should Time to banish education since you do it if you could Time for Classroom 101 Time for Classroom 101 Time for Classroom 101 Budget slashing everywhere Jeremy, welcome. Thank you. What do you think of that intro? <laughs> I think it's. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I'm humbled that you're here. Thank you very much. So, would you mind firstly just taking us through your journey to headship from wherever you feel you want to start? Sure. So, uh, by now, I'm sure people have recognized my accent as funny and different. <laughs> I am Canadian. <laughs> and. Uh, so I started my career in Canada. I worked in Canada in, in a variety of roles uh, for eight years before coming to the UK. And I, well, I guess the, the I, I worked under uh, one of Canada's most, believe it or not, they use the, the term outstanding in Canada sometimes too. Uh, <laughs> Canada is one of Canada's outstanding principals, uh, Charles Austin. And I was very lucky to be able to study, really study, you know, under him, be taken under his wing while doing things like leading, you know, a violence prevention project for, you know, the school board that we, you know, that we worked for. And I worked in a school very much like the school I work in now that had, uh, you know, a high proportion of children from, you know, low socioeconomic backgrounds and a school that had, at at that time, a, a very high number of exclusions and so one of, you know, the thing that I was hired to do was to really connect with the children and the community in a professional way to help the school uh, reduce the, the number of exclusions and increase the amount of time the children were in class and learning. And it was a really uh, eye-opening, uh, the, those last few years were really eye-opening for me. And I guess, you know, even if we go back, go back way further than that, so I grew up 
um, you know, I was one of those kids. Mm-hmm. I grew up with a single parent who, you know, is, it was just an absolute model of industry and integrity and hard work, grit. Just never... This is your mom. Yeah, never ever gave up. You know, and we, we had some really challenging times. We were, we were the family that would come home on Thanksgiving in, you know, in North America. And there would be a box on our front doorstep that a neighbor had bought us that had a turkey and stuffing and vegetables because they knew that my family couldn't afford to have that. Um, wow. it, you know, challenging circumstances. Really hard work ethic, but challenging circumstances. And how many of you are there? So I have, I have, um, I have a brother, and uh, throughout my childhood, my mom had been married uh, at different times, and so I had some step brothers and sisters as I grew up, uh, but I have one, uh, one brother, hmm. and it was. Um, I guess the story of my life is that I, you know, in, in a nutshell, is that I had a really incredible mom who worked really hard and taught me about grit, hard work, industry, doing your very best all the time. <clears throat> but the other side of the the other side of the story is that I had coaches and I had teachers, and often those coaches were teachers that really, you know, changed the course of my life. Mm-hmm. And that was when I was in high school. That was when I knew that this was the job that I wanted to do. That my life took a very different path because there were adults in my life that weren't my family, that weren't you know, related to me in any way, that took an interest in me and helped, you know, helped me be who I am today. Mm. And I knew at that point that, that I wanted to be able to pay that back in some way, that I wanted to be able to contribute to my community or a community that was similar to the children in that community, the families in that community in a way that uh, they would be able to uncover the very best within themselves. So that really incredible teachers is where this all started. Mm. That you know that was it. I knew from that moment that I wanted to be able to do what they were doing for me. Um, and then you know went through high school, went through university, started working in education, decided that I was going to study and that I was going to come overseas, and then I ended up here. <laughs> ended up, I ended up in the UK in 2010. So that was my first. I landed on uh, the 25th of August, uh, 2010. You remember the day? I remember the day. Uh, <laughs> it will stick with me for a very long time because it's a big, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a big move to move countries. I mean, we speak <laughs> most of the same language, but it culturally is wildly different. Very, very different. And in great ways and in chaotic ways. But I never thought that I would stay. I thought I'd be here for a year or two, catch the Olympics. You were traveling. I was, tra- I was traveling for sure. I was studying, traveling, drinking. Uh, you know, I was, I was, you know, living the good life. Mm. And yeah, I had no intention at all of staying. And took a job supply teaching in the first, you know, a few days a week while I was studying. Stumbled upon three bridges in that year as a supply teacher. So. Maternity cover was it? That was it. Yeah. I covered a maternity and thought the school was really great. I thought there were really, you know, there were really nice things about it. I really loved the community. I loved the kids. I thought it reminded me of home. And not knowing anything at all about the education system here. Like blissfully unaware. 
So I was also in that say in that stint while I was working here. I was offered a position because of my experience in Canada. I was offered a position as an assistant head at a struggling school, and I didn't understand what struggling meant in English terms. <laughs> I understood struggling in Canadian terms, which is not the same thing. <laughs> in Canada, a struggling school is. Uh, often in Ontario, when I worked in Ontario, was a part of the Ontario-focused intervention program, mm. which sounds a little bit clinical. And I mean, Ontario educators, I think, renamed the acronym to "Oh fuck, I'm picked," because <laughs> it was, you know, uh, some some educators may be worse nightmare at times. But the difference is that uh, they they poured two hundred and fifty thousand dollars into our school. Literacy coaches, numeracy coaches, um, training, support, development, coaching, like all sorts of resource into the school to help turn it around. Mm. So when I hear, when I heard struggling school back then, I thought, well, this is a school that's going to be on the move soon. This is a school where mm. they've recognized that it's not in a great place and they're really going to help it out. I didn't realize that that was not the case that actually was probably the opposite, mm. that everybody would be, the top would be chopped, everybody would be fired, they would bring in a new group of people or a new regime, and that people would be monitored and measured in the most ugly corporate way. Uh, I didn't understand that until I lived it. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Because it wasn't long after you started as assistant head, right, that you had Ofsted visit and went into special measures. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So I went to the school, and at the, at the, when I went to the school, it was rated good. Not that that had any meaning to me whatsoever. I didn't. I didn't understand even what that meant. But uh, in the November of my you know, of that year that I was there, Ofsted came and put the school into special measures, mm. and. Even, I mean, I, this is normally the point where I think people say, well, and then everything changed. But that's not true. It was, it, the, the regime that came in after the Ofsted report was no different than the regime that existed when I started there. So, constant observation, constant scrutiny, constant monitoring. That the leaders of that school truly believed and were under pressure from the local authority to that they truly believe that the, that the way that they were going to turn the school around to make it good again or whatever they were aiming for was to just monitor, measure, scrutinize, over-engineer what was going on in classrooms because children weren't learning well enough. They were doing graded lesson observations formally uh, once every six weeks, mm -hmm. more frequently for teachers that they deemed were not performing at the standard, which again was completely vague. Mm. What does great math teaching look like in the school? There would be no coherent answer to that. What does great writing teaching look like? What does learning in writing, reading, mathematics look like when it's going really, really well? No coherent answers to any of that stuff. Mm. Um, but they were still looking for something. They had a boxes that they need to tick and how much ICT was used in this lesson and was there a really clear learning objective and did they do an I do, we do, you do model? I mean, just the most nonsensical thoughtless provisions uh, that they, you know, that they thought were going to turn around. And as I said, they were under pressure to use. How did they give that feedback? Yeah. <laughs> you're doing a lot of monitoring. There must be a lot of... Lots of monitoring. So, yeah, I mean, there are observations all the time. 
you know, observations rebranded as learning walks every single day or every second day, all the time. Staff meetings were where the feedback happened. And the feedback was naming and shaming teachers in front of everybody about what it was they were looking for and whether or not they, they felt that the standard was met or not met. It, I mean, it was in the very first debrief um, of that kind, I thought they were joking. I thought that what they were saying, you know, in, in Andy's class, what we were looking for this week was presentation in the books. And in Andy's class, the presentation was magnificent. All of the children, blah, 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 blah. In Jeremy's class, however, it wasn't so good. In front of everyone. In front of everybody. And I just thought, here, I mean, here is a group of people who have no idea how to turn a school around. Hmm. And not necessarily by their own, you know, not their own fault. As I said, I, I think, well, I know as a head teacher that in those situations, you're under tremendous pressure and strain from the local authority and HMI to rapidly change things. And if you ask them for advice about how to do that, that's what they tell you. Hmm. Monitor, measure, scrutinize people. Performance management meetings every six weeks. People progress meetings. Like if it's not turning around, turn them out. Um, if you can't change the people, change the people. Like it, it, it's a very different regime. But I guess having grown up as an educator in a different country, a country that performs exceptionally well internationally, I had very different views about how to turn a school around. And I guess the honest truth is I never really needed in Canada to, to, to put a framework around any of that or to really articulate any of that because it's just the way things are done there. Mm. You know, you take it for granted. Yeah. However, so I've talked about this place in a pretty negative way and it was horrific. The entire Key Stage 2 staff, I think minus one teacher, left at the end of the year when I did. It, it was uh, terrible. However, I think that the great thing for me, perhaps even this school, maybe, you know, for anybody who follows me on Twitter or, you know, thinks that what I'm talking about is worthwhile, the great thing about being in that school, the, the thank you from me to that school, is that it lit the fire inside of me to do what I'm doing today at Three Bridges. Mm. That, okay. that what I've been doing at Three Bridges for the last five years as, as a direct result of having being having been in that kind of environment. Mm -hmm. And now when I, you know, we've hosted thousands of people at this school and I've heard that narrative mm -hmm. a thousand times mm -hmm. from all across the country, not just local to a, you know, to a local authority or I've heard it from all across the country, secondary, primary nurseries, that what was really being done to my school, that my old school, and what was what was being done to me and the, my colleagues, is not uncommon. It actually is the common way. Mm. It wasn't until a few years into what I'm doing here that I realized how much of an outlier that we are. Mm. Um, but that won't be the way it is forever. That's the mm. mission. That's the mission. The mission is to help other people see that there is another way. Right. I need to know, when you were at that previous school, as an assistant head teacher, you must have been tasked with doing these kind of observations and delivering that kind of feedback. How did you react to that, going so against what you thought was right? 
so Austin came in November. There was uh, controversy back and forth. I remember there there being kind of a battle between the school and Ofsted about the the way the report was written, some of the phrasing. So it didn't come out. It was one of those reports that was approved and then came out a few weeks later. So I'm fairly certain that the actual report probably didn't come out until the end of December, maybe beginning of January. It took a while. Mm. And I think it was probably in February that after the regime of observation, monitoring, scrutiny, you know, was in full effect, that the head teacher and I had a conversation through which I said, don't come back into my classroom, don't observe, don't scrutinize, don't monitor what we're doing, because the moment you come in the class, everything will stop. We are not playing this game. It's horrific. And I will not be a part of it. So you, you can that to the head teacher. absolutely because at the time I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have, you know, I, there was no fear. What was the worst that was going to happen? She said, I couldn't come back to the school. Uh, that would have been a gift. Mm. So I just said that that was it. I would stay. I would do my very, very best with the children that were in my care, but I would be a part of nothing else. And if that meant taking my leadership money, if that meant, uh, you know, reducing my con, I, whatever it took, I didn't care. There was no chance I was going to be a part of any of that. Including doing the observations? Of course not. Right. Absolutely not. I mean, that, it basically goes against everything I believe as a leader. That, you know, this, we have become enthralled as a nation with the confusion that schools inspection, teacher inspection, is schools improvement or teacher improvement. It's not. It's not. It's not the same thing. And... And I think that is one of the things that I really tried to, well, that I have really changed here. It's not to say that there is not value or information that can be gained in those processes. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that. That there is, there is value in those things. But in the same way, I mean, uh, it's where we talk as a Three Bridges about the law of diminishing returns. So, you know, you're sitting here with me. I'm not a skinny fella anymore. I enjoy a good meal. Uh, I've never turned a plate away. You know, I, I like to eat. But, you know, one of my favorite things to eat is chocolate cake. I love chocolate. I love chocolate cake. I love profiteroles. Uh, I love it. The first bite, incredible. Talking about it, my mouth is watering. The second bite, still pretty good. The third, really sweet. The fourth, I'm looking for a glass of milk. The fifth, the sixth, the seventh, less good than the first and the second and the third. By the tenth bite, I'm feeling ill. By the fiftieth bite, I'm throwing up. The law of diminishing returns is that, you know, (laughs) that same thing that is helpful, effective, tasty, whatever you want to, you know, however you want to frame it, that the more you do of that uh, very often leads to uh, less of a result. And, it, it, and, in this, and in this case, actually, the systems that we put in place to improve things, are this, is, that is the system now that is holding things back. And at, our, at Three Bridges, we have disenthralled ourselves with those notions. Mm. That it doesn't mean we, you know, people here do nothing. And I think that's probably, <laughs> that's probably, another, that's probably another common misconception. <laughs> If you don't monitor and scrutinize and quality assure and constantly be on top of your teaching staff, 
well, they'll do nothing. Mm. They'll be lazy. They'll take advantage. You know, the standards will drop. And I think that that statement is probably true for a very small percentage of teachers. You know, perhaps people that shouldn't be teachers. Or, you know, arguably, not that they would do nothing or be lazy or any of those things, but, you know, perhaps there is an argument that can be made for people very early on in their career so that they're getting a mixture of things, observation, lesson study, open lessons, you know, micro research. They're getting, as part of their diet, an opportunity for observation and feedback. Yeah. But to be doing that with experienced staff every six weeks or even every 12 weeks, even, you know, once a year is unnecessary unless they request it. Mm. And I think that well, anybody who's been here can see the consistencies, can see the high quality. Our results are very strong. And all of that because of the fact that we've gotten rid of Ofsted style management. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why we're flourishing. Mm. And I think that that's the, the paradigm shift that's needed. That, act, you know, that, that, that what has happened is that we're getting diminishing returns from these things that we were told were the things that were going to save us. And now they're the things that are holding us down. So you, you were there for a year, that, that school we were just talking about. Yep. How did you end up at Three Bridges? Uh, well, it was a bit of a... <laughs> when I was offered the post as assistant head at this school that I, I ended up working at, uh, I had turned down a teaching post at Three Bridges. Mm. And so I put my tail between my legs... <laughs> and I picked up the phone and I called the deputy that was here at the time and I said, I've made a huge mistake. Okay. I've made a huge mistake. Please take me back. I'll do anything. I'll clean the toilets. I'll clean the floors. I will answer phones. But I need, uh, I need to get out of here and I would love to come back to your school. But I'm not sure I can do full time. I think okay. I probably need a few days a week, maybe two, three days a week. Whatever you have. Because you've been so jaded by it. It was, it was a horrific experience. If I had not had any experience from Canada, if that was my maiden voyage, you know, like as a, as a teacher, I would have been a statistic. I would have left teaching without any doubt in my mind because I was bullied. I was, it was the most toxic environment that one can imagine. And you begin to question whether or not you have any value left in the in, in yourself in the profession itself and um, and I absolutely would have left that would have been it mm. but I knew that a better way was possible I knew that that was not it and I knew intrinsically I knew that that I could do something about it okay yeah. and that it wasn't going to be immediate I wasn't going to leave that school and then go somewhere else and be a head teacher the next year and sort everything out I knew that it was going to be a journey one of you know I'm not good at a lot of things but one of the things I think that I am, you know, decent at is the long look. Mm-hmm. Being able to see a few years down the road, uh, at least, you know, what might be. And I want to ask you about that as well, because when you came here, you came as, what, what role was it? So I was, uh, when I started at Three Bridges, I came back, it turned out that um, the head teacher at the time, Matt Burdett, whom I, I have so much respect for, um, you know, we were an incredible team. I miss him mm. dearly. 
But when, when he called me back, after I'd spoken to the deputy head, he called me back himself and said, we'd love to offer you a role here. I understand you don't want to do full-time. What if we did three days a week and you can do some, you know, some one-to-one support with our year six children? And I said, yeah, sounds great. You know, amazing. He called back the next day and offered me a role as a team leader, but it was going to be full-time. And I said to him at that time, I, I don't know. I need to speak to my partner about it. I've really come out of a bad situation. I don't know if I can go back in. And the reason, if I'm honest, the reason was because while I loved this school, this was a traditional English primary school. Mm. You know, six lesson observations a year that were graded. You know, regular planning scrutinies, uh, book scrutinies, lesson observation, uh, quality assurance, learning walks submitting planning in advance that was going to be scrutinized by somebody mm-hmm. that existed here. Mm. So even though I knew that it was a place that I enjoyed and there were people here that I knew and got on with, I wasn't certain that I could place myself back in an environment where I was going to be treated that way, mm. even by nice people. Mm. Yeah. So, so I was hesitant and I spoke to my partner and I, I asked Matt, um, the head teacher at the time, I asked him if I could have a few days to really mull it over. And uh, my partner and I spoke about it and, and she and I both felt that, um, that I could make a difference here, that the school was receptive. Matt in particular was exceptionally receptive to new ideas and new ways of doing things. And so I called him back and I accepted a job as a team leader here. I'd love to know then how that beginning led to here because you must have come here, seen a number of the practices that are just ingrained in our, in our system and thought we can do this a better way. At what point were you able to approach a mat and talk about that and, and what kind of conversations took place all that time ago that led to you embracing Singaporean maths and talk for writing and, and, a, and a new culture and taking away some of the scrutiny or changing it. Mm. Where did that all begin? Yeah, okay, so well, <laughs> it's been seven years, mm. you know, it's been a long time. And okay, so it, where did it start? You know, I mean, I guess Three Bridges demographically is, you know, hovers between 40 and 50% people premium, uh, 80% English as additional language, a third of the school is on the special needs register. Uh, 95% black, Asian, minority, ethnic. Uh, you know, the school is in, of the 75 primary schools kneeling, it's in the top 10 for disadvantage in terms of indices of deprivation. The, the, the estate that's across the road from us is in the second percentile for crime and violence in the city. It's a challenging mm. environment. Mm. So when I started here, the key stage two results were between 58 and 65% of children achieving the expected standard in reading, writing, and math combined, level four. Mm. And I believe it was around 10% that got to level five combined. Mm. So it was in trouble. The school was in trouble. And what the conversation that was initially had with me was that we needed to sort that out. Reading and writing are a difficulty in the school. Can you help? Mm. Now, I had come from an Ontario-focused intervention program where we had had lots of input around literacy, reading and writing from specialist coaches. Some of the stuff at the time was considered to be, you know, cutting edge, mm-hmm. new ideas, new thinking that had not been disseminated widely mm-hmm. and that our schools were getting that information to help us improve. So when I came here, I had a bit of a, an understanding of what good instructional practice looked like and, and, 
and the metrics for positive change. So I asked Matt, are you happy for me to take a hold of reading and writing in Key Stage 2? And he said yes. What he meant was he wanted me to check in with him regularly to talk through what I was doing. What I heard was, just go. Go for it. <laughs> so I just went and I spoke to the other, there were two of us, a lower key station, upper key station leader. And I said, listen, if we're going to, if we're going to make this happen, we need to do it together. So there's no sense, you know, my team studying this stuff, but it not going across the whole key stage. We need to do it together. And I was just really lucky that uh, the, the other leader at the time felt the same way. And we started collaborative development. The first collaborative kind of leading from the middle approach at Three Bridges, which was let's take a look at what evidence and evidence base says about really good reading instruction, really good writing instruction. And we did that over the course of the year. Mm. And the process was let's take a look at what the evidence is saying that we already do really well. So oh, we do this, we do this, we do this. High fives all around, amazing, that's brilliant. Now let's take a look at the same research for what it's saying we don't do or we're confused by or we're uncertain of. And then let's go away and have a play. That was the phrase that I used and then Matt and I used for years here. So no high stakes, no pressure. Here's the information. Go and give it a shot. Try it out in your class. Now, I was fortunate that I'd come from a background that I knew it would work. Okay. That if it acted well, I knew this would work. I knew that children would learn in a, in a more enhanced way. I knew that achievement would rise. I knew that attainment would rise. So they, teachers went away and a real mixture, right? There were teachers that were not interested in change and didn't want to stop what they were doing. They were happy with what they'd always done. And then there were teachers that thought, no, this sounds awesome. I want to give it a go. And so just really knowing the team, then bringing them back three or four weeks later and saying what went well, what didn't go well, how can we help? And that was the first incarnation of teachers helping teachers here. So where things were not going well, the teachers were really clear. This didn't work for me. I'm not sure it's the right thing to do. And they'd have somebody who worked on their team saying, hey, I hear what you're saying, but I was stuck there too. I tried this and it worked. Why don't we work together? And so over the course of that year, we had a number of whole st key stage meetings like that. And things started to change. So that when you then came into this school and asked the question, what does great reading instruction look like? There was a coherent answer. Everybody was trying to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. It wasn't one class doing this and one class doing that. Everybody was on board with the same ideas. And in that first year, our, our attainment went above 90%. Um, in a year. Yes, straight away. So that was our, our, the, so our combined score went through the roof. Our, uh, at you know, level five at that time, again, I think it was around 40%, you know, really, really skyrocketed. That's incredible. And stayed there. Mm. So ever since, our results have not changed wildly. When the new curriculum came in, uh, the results went down slightly, 70-something percent in the first year. But compared to the rest of the country at that time, that was... This, that was like getting 90 the year before. Mm. And, you know, now we're a school that gets combined 80, which is, you know, pretty high. Very high. And in a, in a community that, you know, has a lot of things going against it, um, we're really able to highlight the things that it's got going for it. Mm. And so it was really, that's where things started here. That slow process and 
Um, you know, Matt recognizing perhaps that I had an area of skill or support in being able to move practice forward and that people were interested in getting better. Um, I was promoted that next year to assistant head, a year and a half later to deputy, and uh, I was deputy for two years before becoming the head a few years ago. Hmm. So I guess that's where it started. <laughs> and you and Matt had presumably had some conversation at some point about <clears throat> a change of the culture. I guess it, it started through what you just talked about. Sure. It was just happening. But there must have been some conversations about um, how can we change monitoring and well-being here and yeah. that kind of thing. Where yeah. did that start? Did you go to him and say that there's a few things we do I'm not sure about or, or was it different to that? You know, as the tide was starting to turn, as we were starting to get results from a new way of doing things, it became more challenging to defend the way we'd always done things. And so bit by bit, piece by piece, we started to change things. But so the pedagogy started changing immediately. Mm. So attainment and progress rose considerably. But the, the culture started to change uh, when I became the deputy. Mm-hmm. So when it was when I was the deputy and Matt was the head, that's when we really started to unpick all the other things that we were doing. The observations, the grades, the scrutinies, the, all of that stuff, the marking, the submitting planning in advance, all of that sort of stuff, we started to push out. Uh, setting, ability grouping, you know, was again a big thing at this school. Three sets for everything, low ability, middle ability, high ability. Saying those words makes me feel uncomfortable. So all of that stuff was in place at this school mm-hmm. for the first year and a half that I worked here. Mm-hmm. But no longer exists. I don't think that anything that's sustainable happens quickly. Mm-hmm. So again, it was really about the long look. It wasn't that, you know, day one is deputy. We're getting rid of marking. We're getting rid of this performer-based planning. We're getting, you know, like out, 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 out. Everything in our school happened through conversation. So Matt and I spent hundreds of hours over the course of months of time talking about, you know, what was meaningless in the school and what was meaningful. Looking at things like marking as an example, really being able to unpick the idea that, no, we believe that feedback is a really important tool for, you know, uh, students to make progress and for teachers, but that written feedback is probably the lowest form of feedback. So then it was about interrogating other ways of giving feedback. And once, once Matt and I had our heads wrapped around where we thought we were going, mm. it was really important that we, you know, we were, we were really clear with the staff about where, what we were trying to do. And that, yes, we all see marking as a huge problem here, but we need to replace marking with something else. We can't just take it away. Mm. And that helped people on the journey with us. Mm. So it was, everything was like that, whether it was marking or the planning or the, you know, all of that sort of stuff really came through rich conversation. And over time, as we researched new things, as we immersed the teachers in uh, these changes, these developments, as we took their feedback and their uh, input into what those changes might look like, the school started to change drastically. Mm. Um, and, And I would say... Again, a big piece of that was initiating things like lesson study. So 
really placing a focus, once you design pedagogy together, in the way that I was talking about with the reading and the writing, once you design pedagogy together, you don't need to monitor whether people are compliant anymore because they feel ownership over it. So not only are they doing their very best to uh, practice in the way that we've all decided, because that's, that's only the first level. The next most important thing is that they're not just doing what they agreed that they would do, but they're constantly reflecting on what it is we're doing so that they can refine it and make it better. So, you know, I know you had been here a few years ago to look at the mathematics. Mm. I am completely confident that if you came back tomorrow and watched Masma School, it is exceedingly better than it was when you came here. And not because I stood up at the front of a room and said, this is what great maths looks like. You should be doing it. And I'm going to be making sure you're doing it in six weeks by checking. But because the staff have, have immersed themselves in the, in the pedagogy, practiced with it, and through experience and study, decided that a better way was possible. Mm. So why wouldn't we all do it? Mm. And so it just it changes everything. The culture really started to evolve then. A deep focus on learners and learning. What's the impact of what it is that we're teaching and the approaches that we're taking? And now, conversations in the staff room are not you know, on the fly. They're meaningful, they're deep, and they're about learners. That's impactful. Mm. You know, that's what creates incredible results, not compliance. And how is being ahead for you? I mean, this is just the last couple of weeks as we record have been <laughs> something else, right? Sure. It's, it's a... Yeah. Is it's it what a, you thought it would be? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm meant to be a head teacher. No? I, there are lots of things I love about this job. Um, but there are lots of things equally that I don't like about it. Can you I, tell us some of the latter? Because I can guess a lot of the former from what we talked about. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't have much interest in uh, HR, finance, mm. budgeting. Mm. Um, I think I've gotten to a point where I'm much more interested in the development of the teachers and the children than I am about responding to complaints or um, you know, litigation or you know, those sorts of things. Mm. I, I'm not, it's, that's not my area of expertise and it's not something I'm really interested in. But it is part of being a head teacher. Mm. So you know, in the next few years, it's making decisions about whether or not I'm going to move myself into roles where I can still work with teachers and talk about pedagogy and practice have impact on a school or a group of schools, but without the other stuff. Mm. Um, I don't know what that looks like, though. <laughs> I don't know what that looks like. <laughs> we could be having the same conversation in 10 years. Um, but it, I think it's fascinating that you say that because the list that you just went through, I think, is the list that goes through a lot of assistant heads, deputy heads, even phase leaders who are thinking about headship. Mm -hmm. And uh, those things put a lot of people off. Overall, it's worth it. I mean, it's the best job in the world. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm so lucky. And the things that I'm, you know, moan about in my job, you know, are, they're not, they're not all the time. Mm. You know, they're temporary. Mm. And the impact as a head teacher you're able to have on the lives of your staff and children in this in a community far outweigh any of the nonsense that you have to deal with as part of those, as a part of those other things. So no, I, I, I think it's absolutely worth it. Shall we move into the crux of the show? Sure. You're up for this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, 
In Classroom 101, we strive to improve education by calling out its least helpful terms, paradigms, systems or practices, suggesting better ways. So Jeremy, what would be the first thing that you would banish? Ofsted. We don't even need any first question. So <laughs> that's number one. Get rid of it. Surprise me. It's, there's no, I mean, it's probably right up there. I mean, number two is probably high stakes accountability, but the root of all evil in this country, in this system, in this education system, is this belief that regulation, inspection, whatever you want to call it, is related to schools improvement. It is a dirty idea. Okay, and you're saying this is somebody who has had Ofsted visit, mm -hmm. and it went well. I mean, by the time this gets published, I'm sure it'll be it'll be live, so I, yeah, can, well. I can say it. I mean. Yes, it went. It didn't just go well. We are outstanding as a school in every category, but not because that's what we focus on here. Mm. We're like this is a highly disadvantaged school, mm. getting great results with incredible staff that are far better teachers than I ever was, and it has nothing. It has everything to do with the opposite of what Offset stands for. We do not do regular lesson observations and scrutinies and constant monitoring and beating people over the head. That is why we're successful here. Mm. And I think that, I, I mean, I, I, there is nothing to be gained from that kind of organization in the way that it is established and set up today. Nothing. Wow. But there is, there, and I guess that's the other thing, is that in England, I am looked at as um, a, an outlier, a maverick, a dissident, do we do things differently here? And some of that I, I'm happy to accept. You know, I am very outspoken about a lot of the things that we do here. But the, 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 the joke of this, I think, is that in England, I'm an outlier. In Canada, in Finland, in Singapore, in nations that perform, you know, years better than England does on international, by international standards. This is not unique. It's normal. If you go into Ontario, what we're doing in this school is very much reflected in that entire, like, 5,000 schools. That this is not anything special or unique or anything that anybody would ever write about. It just is common practice. It makes us sound, as a nation, really closed-minded when you say that. Do you think I mean, we just don't look out enough? I mean, I, I love this country. <laughs> I live here. I've made it my home now for a decade. I love this place. Mm. But educationally, yes, mm. it is short-sighted. It's about quick returns and quick turnaround. I mean, you can celebrate the top 20% you know, of schools and penalize the bottom 20 and spend all of our energy doing that. But what about the middle 60% that don't need to be monitored and measured in this way? There are so many other ways. I mean... Spirals of inquiry, you know, lesson study, research on mass, uh, uh, challenge partners. Like there's, I mean, there are so many alternatives mm. to this approach. And this school is an example on the micro scale of mm. how that's possible. Mm. You know, we don't, we don't do any of the nonsense that exists in other schools in the way that that is done. And we're still able to be very successful. One thing that really strikes me as I listen to you saying this is that 
10 years ago, almost exactly, I was a trainee teacher and I listened to a head teacher come and lecture at my university. And he was at the time the only head teacher in the country to have had an Ofsted and be given a one in every single category and subcategory, sure. as there were then. And he came and lectured and told us he didn't agree with Ofsted. And he said, I should be praising Ofsted because they've just praised me to the hilt, but it doesn't work, I don't believe in it. Mm. It fascinates me that 10 years on, I'm listening to the same message from a head teacher that is doing it a totally different way to the standard way in England, mm -hmm. it is, mm -hmm. and so was he, is succeeding by Ofsted standards and just saying, I don't think it's fit for purpose, basically, right? It's not. Mm. It's absolutely not. The, one of the pieces that I've just written really tries to make a comparison between these things. So, I don't own a landline telephone. I don't even know what my phone number is at home. I have no idea. Hmm. Now today, I think there are many, many people that would not consider that an outrageous statement. Hmm. You know, like I, I, I don't know, I know my mobile number, but I don't know the mobile number of anybody else because it's in my phone. Hmm. You know, like these are things that have evolved and changed over time. So that saying that I don't have a landline home phone, I don't know my phone number, is not an outrageous thing to believe today, you know, in 2019. Hmm. But, you know, rewind 25 years, and if you had said to someone, you don't have a home phone, it's likely social services would have gotten involved. <laughs> like, it was an absolutely essential piece of equipment, of, of, of communicative equipment, to connect people for your safety, for your health, for your friendships. Like, it was an essential piece of equipment in your home. Hmm. But today it's obsolete. So you're not denying that Ofsted was effective maybe once, because a lot of people do say that. They say, well, they've seen the long-term perspective over a number of decades yep. since they came in in 92, an improvement in standards. Sure. And you're saying, sure, there might have been once. Yeah. Like, like I said, Ofsted is a solution to a problem that existed at one time. Mm -hmm. Everything that is a problem today was a solution to something before. So it's not to say that whoever thought up Ofsted was a crazy person or a, you know an idiot. No, it was created because there was a situation that was perceived at the time to be problematic and this was the solution to that. But to believe that if we got rid of Ofsted today that we would go back to the way we were 25 or 30 years ago is ludicrous. Hmm. You know, it is not the way it was or the way it is. There is another way. So I've got to ask you, right? What is that other way? So it's, 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 a, it's a system that is not driven by fear. Mm. It's a system in which teachers collaborate with teachers. It's a system in which schools collaborate with other schools. It's a system where we, you know, we respect both research and experience. It's a system in which improvement, high standards, are at the core of everything we do. We want every child to achieve. We want every child to graduate with five good GCSEs. You know, we want uh, a well-rounded education. We want children to have the arts, drama, music, uh, you know, civics, well-being, you know, like all of those things should be in a curriculum. Adventure, canoeing, kayaking, like PE, drama, like all of those things need to be a part. But it's a place where there are no lead tables. Where we're not comparing schools and making them compete against each other. It's, it's a system where when things are not going well, schools feel safe to say, we're struggling with this. Can someone help? And it's not to say, so 
in Ontario, as an example, there are the equivalent of SATs mm-hmm. in Ontario. They exist. Mm-hmm. They're called EQAO, the Education Quality and Accountability Office, which if you, you know, put that into, if you asked if we should have an education, um, you know, quality and accountability office in England, I mean, just that phrase is, you know, would bring shudders down people's spines. <laughs> the EQAO tests in Ontario in grades three and grade six um, are not high stakes. They're a piece of the puzzle. So can we use that information about schools to determine whether or not they're being effective? Of course you can. Mm. Like, SATs can be used to, to give information to the system, to schools, to leaders, to teachers about what's going well and what's not. It can't tell the whole thing, mm-hmm. which I think we think, you know, that gets confused now, but it gives you information. So I'm not somebody who believes that we abolish all testing, we abolish all, you know, uh, metrics that could determine whether or not a school is succeeding or failing, but it's the gun to people's head. Mm. that is horrific because if you've got a gun to your head you're not thinking clearly you're not thinking deeply you're not thinking in a long sustainable way you're thinking how do I get myself out of this situation I'll do whatever it takes if someone says monitor people six times a year I'll do it if someone says check the books every week I'll do it whatever it takes to get this gun away from my head is what I will do Short-termism. It's all short-term. Nothing is about long-term sustainable impact. And so what ends up happening is that these short-term measures, as I've said before, they get put into place. Yeah, maybe those short-term measures improve the bottom group of schools, schools that are really, really struggling. Now, that's not to say that's the only thing that could change those schools, but perhaps they have deep impact there. But what impact did Ofsted coming to my school last week have on our school improvement or our school development? Nothing. Mm. It was a waste of two days. They were <laughs> unnecessary. And so people would say, well, yeah, you got outstanding across the board, so now you're exempt. There, there will be no routine inspection for a school like yours. And I guess what I'm saying is, it shouldn't be reserved for those of us that are already doing well. Mm. It should be recognized as a mechanism that prevents people from doing as well as we are. Because the mechanisms that we have in this school to improve are not those mechanisms. Mm. We improved as a school because we shelved those things. We put them in the bin and recognized them as obsolete. And we've got more, we've got improved ways of making this school great. And the system's no different. Mm. You know, uh, while you can get false positives from an organization like Ofsted who is interrogative and um, invasive, it doesn't mean that it's working. I mean, you can get SATS results by drilling and killing the kids. Mm. It doesn't mean they get a good education. Mm. So, you know, we need to look more deeply and more robustly at what we consider to be schools that are improved and that are successful. Mm. Because otherwise, this will never go away. Shall we move on to the third item? Okay. So, uh, I guess it's the idea of, of control and compliance. Okay. Because what's happened is that teachers are leaving the profession en masse. I think it's something like within the first few years, 50% of teachers are leaving. 40, I mean, it's really, really high. In, in that region of 40 or 50 I mean, good gosh. Whatever that is. I mean, it's, that, it's just outrageous. But it's been cleverly branded by the government as 
marking, planning, workload, admin, whatever you want to call it. But I guess my point is, it has not been reflected upon as high stakes accountability. It has not been reflected upon as guns to people's heads. Um, what it has been branded as is an in-school problem. School leaders are making workload too high, making you mark too much, making you do too much admin. And that, it's like, it, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the usual suspects, you know, like the greatest trick the devil ever played was making you believe that he didn't exist. That is it, right? It's not, it's been really cleverly rebranded as these like marking, planning, workload, admin. Oh my gosh, if your school fixes those things, everything will be, but teachers will stay longer. They'll love their work. And the reality is that that is complete bullshit. So you're saying the DFE is Kaiser Soze? Yes, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. It, it, is, it is outrageous to think that. Now, there are probably teachers listening going, no, marking in my school is a huge problem. And I, like, I get it. I get it. I'm not saying they're not a problem. What I'm saying is they're a symptom mm. of a bigger problem. And the bigger problem, so it, you know, it, this is a really long way of saying, what is it that I would throw away? Or what is it that I would replace what I've thrown away with? Teachers are not leaving the profession en masse because they're marking so much. They're not leaving en masse because um, of the admin that they're asked to do. They're not even leaving en masse because of the low pay and the pension that I'll get when I'm one foot in my grave. Mm. Although all of those things are irritating. <laughs> they're leaving because they don't have the choice. You know, it's about agency. Mm. Trust. That the, the narrative in this country is not just, I mark too much. It's that I don't have the choice. I'm told that regardless of what I think is a professional knowledge worker, that with university degree or degrees, that writing comments in people's books is somehow going to be the magic thing that turns that child around. And the problem is that every intelligent person in the building knows that that's not true, but they're forced to do it anyways. Mm. You know, it's, it's those sorts of things. It's not the marking, it's not the planning, it's not the workload, it's the choice. It, it feels like whenever you're reading about happiness, they all say you need autonomy. Yes. To be happy, you need autonomy. Yes. And you're saying, as a profession, we're starving teachers of that autonomy. Absolutely. And I guess that comes down to, you know, it, it, the analogy that we use at Three Bridges is that we need to be soil people. It's the seed or the soil. What makes a great plant? You know, like the chicken or the egg? You know, like the, these, these debates that kind of go around and around. So what we decided, I guess, as a country, as an education system, is that what we needed to do to make the flower the, the flourish into the greatest thing possible was that we needed to just, you know, measure, monitor, weigh, quality assure, over-engineer the seed. Hmm. And so while we've been fixated, completely enchanted by this idea, we have completely neglected the soil that we put people in. The culture, so, the climate. That's it. Hmm. So when you say to someone that you need to mark in-depth do this, do that, mark in this code, use this pen color. What you're saying to them is, I don't trust you. Mm. When you're saying to someone that I need to meet with you every six weeks to be looking at the progress your pupils are making, 
you're saying to them that you don't trust them. When you say to people that I need to observe your lessons every six weeks or every 12 weeks, and I need to give you my personal view on what it's good and what wasn't, you're saying you don't trust them. Mm. It doesn't matter how nice you are about it. It doesn't matter how you dress it up. Oh, we're not doing book scrutinies, Jeremy. We're doing book celebrations. <laughs> like if those things are not aligned with a place of trust and, and belief in your people, mm. it doesn't matter what you call it. You, you can't fake that. No, it has to be authentic. So I'm not saying that the school just, you know, at Three Bridges, people just do whatever they want. Well, what do you do here? Can you give us some examples of how you give your staff autonomy? In a classroom, children are able to make choices when they are ready to make good choices. Mm -hmm. So you don't say to a group of children in, uh, you know, year one, you can eat whatever you want for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Because what we would have is children who eat McDonald's for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and would be overweight and unhealthy because they're not ready to make the right choice. Mm. They're so, you know, they're, they're new enough in their life, maybe as a teacher in their career, where they do what they believe they need or what they, what they believe they want rather than maybe what they need. Mm. So part of really great leadership in incredible schools is really supporting the staff's professional development. So making sure that they're members of the Charter College of Teaching, they have access to research articles and journals, that they have a CPD library in your school so that they're uh, able to read and, and, and immerse themselves in brilliant thinking. But as a leader, they don't, like at Three Bridges, you don't just get to go and do whatever you want. Everything is done as a part of a collaborative. So we look at what an evidence base says, we look at what our experience says, and we make decisions together. Mm. And then, once those decisions have been made, everybody is following that until a time comes when somebody goes, hey, I think we can do better than what we're doing right now. Mm. And teachers early on in their career get a whole host of different supports. But it's, it is that idea that to create the right culture means taking responsibility for making sure that people have the support and development that they need. Mm. And that on their journey, individually, as unique educators, that they are gradually released to make bigger decisions, better decisions, uh, you know, more pivotal decisions. But the idea is that the first thing you have to do is put them in situations where they are building their social capital. They're in things like lesson study to learn about the impact of their teaching on the learning and the learner. And then... They're given the autonomy, the decisional capital, to change their practice, to mm -hmm. change our collective practice based on what they found. It's those sorts of things that change the culture. Mm -hmm. It's not about just letting people do whatever they want all the time and there are no systems here, there are no routines, we just kind of, everybody turns up and we hope for the best. Mm -hmm. That over time, as we've established collectively and collaboratively things that work, it's then stepping back and stepping back and stepping back and allowing them to take on more as they're ready. And now, I mean, seven years later, so I've been here seven years, they're very, very, very highly skilled. Five years ago, they weren't making the decisions they're making today. And so there was more intervention. There was more support for that. There was more, um, you know, there was more of a hand in the, you know, in, in the pie. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it happens over time. But I think one of the most important things is that 
you know, when you start in a school that's very, very compliance-based, very much about quality assurance, if you ask the teachers what they believe their job is in that school, they believe that they are stone cutters. Mm-hmm. They believe that they are there to just chip away at stone. Mm-hmm. And an incredible leader's job, I believe, one of their jobs, is to be able to help those people who have been turned into stone cutters realize that actually they're building a cathedral. You know, and that, that is part of the job, mm. is making sure that they see the cathedral that they're building. Mm. Whether that's about the marketing or the planning and how that's evolving, or the culture of the school, or pedagogy or practice, it's really important that from the outset, that that is made exceptionally clear, abundantly clear, this is where we're going. And having the vulnerability and the courage as a leader, that maybe in your blueprint, you thought that in year three, that you were gonna put an extension on the kitchen. But then when you got there, if the staff decided that it was going to go in the living room, that that's where it goes. Mm-hmm. And that that's okay. Mm-hmm. Unless it's detrimental to the learning and all the children. But the reality is it never is. Mm-hmm. You know, that by the time you get there, they're probably ready to even make better decisions than you make. Because they're on the ground. They're the ones in front of the kids. They know better. Yeah. And, but it takes vulnerability. Mm-hmm. To give the autonomy that you're talking about to your staff. People are going to make mistakes. And, sure. And can you think of a staff member who struggled like that and what you did? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody in the school here has struggled at some point or another. I struggle from, you know, from time to time, and we all struggle. Mm. Um, it's really about, I think, perceiving emotions, um, you know, acting in emotionally appropriate ways, and having a sense of pause. That I've heard horror stories of head teachers walking in and out of classrooms, as I do. The difference being that I, when they see something in the classroom they don't like, that they call the teacher on it immediately. Mm. Well, I'm not confident that that's the most effective approach mm. that we're calling at our staff and, and that we enter a classroom or a school with this unchecked privilege that what is it that makes anyone believe that going into a classroom or a learning environment or a school that just because I wear the suit, because I have the fancy title, that I know better? You know, I think that that's, I think it's both dangerous and arrogant. Mm. That there are things as a leader and as a teacher that I learned in my career, but through coaching conversations, through really helping teachers unpick their own thinking and where the school is and where their class is at, that actually they often come to solutions on their own and very often will come to solutions that are better than the one that I thought of. Mm. So it's really about checking that, you know, that, that idea of superiority at the door. Mm. But when people do struggle here, now, today, when they struggle, they self-identify mm. and they go and find someone else in the school that they believe is doing a great job of what they're struggling with and they support each other. Mm. But a few years ago, that wasn't the case. In my first experience in this country in a school, when we were being named and shamed in staff meetings because they perceived the performance to be poor, what I learned there was um, just because something may be going wrong doesn't mean everybody needs to know about it. And actually the person who might be underperforming, in the first instance, it's not necessarily true that they themselves need to know it's them. So a lot of the performance stuff that goes on here, I'm in and out of classrooms all the time. Teachers are in and out of each other's classrooms all the time. There are documents that sit in behind the scenes for our senior leadership team. 
where if I go into a classroom and I think, oh, maybe that's a bit off, then I put it into a, a document that our middle leadership team has access to. I'll go send an email or go and have a face-to-face -face chat with that middle leader and say, listen, I went into one of the classes in your team today. This is what I saw. Mm. I was literally in there for two minutes. I don't know where that's at and what's going on. Maybe you can take a look too. And if they think that it's something worth addressing, then they address it with the whole team. They don't call someone out and say, well, in Jeremy's lesson, this was a real problem. For example, you know, we talked about presentation in the books as, a, as, a, as an issue earlier. If presentation is what the challenge is, as an example, what our staff here do now is once we've identified that as an issue, they'll bring it to a team meeting, but they don't say, well, we're bringing this to team meeting because Andy's presentation is really poor. They say, what we'd like you to do is bring your very best examples of what you believe to be presentation. And so nobody's on the line. There's no risk there. Everybody's bringing it. There's not a huge amount of vulnerability. Everybody's bringing something that they consider to be awesome. And then they're collaboratively coming up with, you know, almost a, a, an exemplar, a checklist, a vision of what are the common threads between all of these things that we are doing that are exemplary. Great. So now we've got an idea of what the standard is. What I want you to do is go away, take, you know, three weeks, four weeks. When we come back, let's meet as a team in four weeks. I want you to bring me now your most improved book. So one that we all know individually, you know, that was not great. But that now that we all can collectively agree what those key points were, the standard, let's see where it's at now. It doesn't need to be perfect, doesn't need to be, you know, but let's see what improvement looks like in each of our classes. Again, <clears throat> nobody's on the line, nobody's getting a finger pointed at them, they're working in a collaborative way to determine what's best, mm -hmm. and 95% of the time, that sorts out any issues in the school. Mm. It is very, very rare that it ever needs to go beyond that. Mm -hmm. But if it does... I'm not saying we don't speak to teachers individually, and if it's something simple, of course, they're going to have a courageous conversation yeah. and say, hey, I've noticed this, we've been talking about that, how's it going for you? Mm. You know, can I help? Talk me through that. Mm. But it's, it's, it's acting in emotionally appropriate ways mm. where you're valuing the human, you know, like that all of us, you know, there, there are days that I come in, maybe I've had a, a disagreement with my, you know, fiance in the morning, and I've come into work in a bit of a huff and I make a decision that's not the right one because my head's not in the right space. Mm. Well, I don't need somebody coming in here and pointing fingers at me and telling me how horrible a job I did. I'm pretty good at doing that myself, <laughs> as are professional staff. Mm. The worst critics of the teachers in our school are the teachers themselves. Mm. You know, they don't need somebody else hammering down on them. They need people who are gonna support them and develop them to be the very best that they can be. So it's not to say that things don't go wrong here or people are always performing at a high level. It's impossible to perform at a high level all the time. And in considering <clears> that, you look after your staff. Yeah, and, and that's the bit about the soil. Yeah. Mm. What do you do in terms of uh, well-being and staff having a break? Yeah, sure. So I guess I'm, it comes down to trust. I'm pretty trusting with the staff. Mm. If people come in and say they need time, then they get time. Right. You know? That simple. Really. I mean, it's, it, it doesn't go much beyond that. And, and everybody's, oh, well, they're going to take advantage. People don't. Mm. You know, it's not like I've got a line on my door <clears throat> saying they can't come to work tomorrow and, uh, you know, it's, it, it's not working out. Or, you know, like, it doesn't happen. They use it and they appreciate it and they use it when they need it. We do give staff here uh, six well-being days. One of them is paid. Five of them, they are optional. And they can take as unpaid days whenever they want. Mm. They can send an email to me and say, can I take a day, you know, next week or, 
you know, uh, can I take today? Uh, whatever they need. Because it's not about, I mean, the work is the joy. I love my job. Mm. And so this isn't about saying that well-being is about not working. Mm. Because the work should fuel you. Mm. But taking care of other people's children is a hard job. And it, your own life, like life is complicated, it's organic, it, it's, it's got moving pieces. And sometimes you just need a day off, mm. you know? And in every other place, like every other job in the world, it's possible. <laughs> some, for some reason, there's like this heavy guilt culture on teachers that like, if you're not in for a day of work, everything is going to fall apart and nothing will be able to continue and the children will have a horrible experience and they'll not make progress. It's all lies. Like, it, it's better that a teacher take a day off and we put a supply teacher and internal cover in and they come back at 100% than force them to come in and guilt them into being here, you know, for those six days a year, which means that every day they're diminishing. You know, they're at 55%, they need a recharge. No, can't have it. 52, 50, 48. I don't want that 48 in the classroom. Mm. I want 100. I want 90. I want their very best. So if it means giving them a day, take a day. Mm. You know, it's okay. Wow. Okay, so Ofsted, high stakes accountability and the compliance culture. Yeah. Hi again, Andy here. I hope you're enjoying the show. This is a quick message to ask for your help. The aim of Classroom 101 is to support wider sharing of ideas and wisdom in education. So if you like what you hear from Jeremy, I'd be really grateful if you could share this with others, whether verbally or via social media. You can tweet the show at Classroom101pod, me at AndyVT101, and Jeremy will share his own details at the end of the episode too. Now, in this first series of Classroom 101, we'll be concluding each episode with three quick questions to get to know our guests a little better. So let's get back to the show. Okay, the first question is, uh, who has been the biggest influence on you in terms of your educational career? Easy. Charles Austin. Okay, from back in Canada. Yeah. He, to this day, has had the, the largest influence on, uh, on me as a professional person. He, I would even say that he has had the largest influence on the direction of this school that his voice echoes through the corridors and the classrooms of this school. He has had a monumental impact on my views of what high quality leadership were all about. And when I had no business whatsoever being in the office of a principal in Ontario, he took me under his wing and said really clearly, you won't appreciate this now. But in, you know, in 10 years or in 15 years, when you're a principal, you will look back and appreciate, you know, these moments. And uh, I think at the time I did recognize a level of how great that was for me, but he was absolutely right. It was not until I became a head teacher that I realized the true value in the immersion and the, and the, in the, in the relationship that he established with me that helped me do what I'm doing today. Charles Austin. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. What makes you irate? Oh. <laughs> Apart from all the education. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think I like, I like to think that, you know, in terms of making the weather at this school, I'm a pretty calm guy. <laughs> My 
fiance would, I'm sure, have a million and one things. But and what makes me the most irate outside of school? Uh, people who stand in doorways. <laughs> drives me crazy. People who stand in the middle of sidewalks, like stop walking, and it's really, really busy. Um, those, are, those are the sorts of things. Or I guess it's, the, it's just people who are unaware, like just unaware of the people around them, their surroundings. Um, those, I mean, that stuff drives me absolutely crazy. Don't stop walking on a sidewalk when there are lots of people. Move to the side. Please. Please do that. <laughs> Brilliant. Right, the final question is, uh, what is your favourite place in the world? Oh yeah, that's a good one. Uh, well, well there, I mean, I've been really fortunate in my life to travel to lots of places, but my, my favourite place is um, Mijas and Fuenarola in Spain. You know, in the Costa del Sol. I mean, I've been to Singapore, I've been to Antigua, I've been to the Dominican, I've been, I've been all around the world. But the place that uh, has the biggest place in my heart is, yeah, Mijas in Fuenarola. What's uh, so Spain. special about, about it? I guess, well, it's where, so Mijas is where I got engaged. But it, it's like, um, I actually go and visit Charles Austin there. He, oh. he for the last few years, he lives there for a few months a year as he learns Spanish. Um, and I've, it's almost like, it's like going to the cottage or going to the, you know, going to your summer home. I know the people, uh, I, well, I don't, I don't know the people. I know the city, I know the geography, I know the food, mm. but it's a different culture. It's a different experience. And it's not far away. You know, it's a, it's a short flight. It's not expensive. And it's, yeah, it's like the show Cheers, you know, like sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name mm. and yeah, I feel kind of at home there. Can I ask how you proposed? Yeah, yeah, you can. <laughs> so in the most uh, painstakingly horrific way, I'm Canadian, my partner is English, so it's always tricky my family obviously doesn't live here. Her family does. So making sure everybody was happy and that I wasn't doing something that her family was involved in that my family wasn't becomes tricky. So my family flew over here. For, they were staying for a couple of weeks. So what we did was we took a family, worst nightmare, family holiday to Fuenarola, to Mijas. And so everybody was there. We were taking a walk through the botanical gardens on the cliffside in Mijas. And I pushed the rest of the family ahead and, uh, you know, on the cliffside, asked uh, the, the girl of my dreams if she would marry me. Um, and did in, your family know this was coming? And they knew that this was coming. And they were an absolute nightmare to have there for those three days. But it is uh, a blessing that because they were all happy that they were there, they were all a part of that experience, and um, yeah, it was a it was a it was a good moment. Wow, a great moment, the best of my life. Thank you so much. Uh, really enjoyable insight into your life. It's been a, such a fascinating interview. Full stop. So thank you, Jeremy, so much. Before we conclude, can you just tell listeners if they want to find out more about the school or about you, where would they go? 
Sure. So uh, if you want to find more about the school, threebridgesprimary.co.uk is our website. There's lots of stuff on there, publications and schools we work with and all that sort of fun stuff. Um, and if you want to hear more of my crazy ramblings, um, I'm a, an active Twitter user and my handle or my, yeah, my handle is um, at Hannah Jeremy. Jeremy, I've loved so much chatting education with you. Uh, it's been a real pleasure hearing more of your thoughts on how best to improve our education system. Jeremy Hane, thank you for being a guest on Classroom 101. Thank you. And education's in pretty bad shape. Teachers are leaving on the planet and their escape. It's not enough time to teach the things you should. Time to banish education since you do it if you could. Time for Classroom 101.